0: This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish Hour. This week we'll start off reading from JTA. The first story, two Ivy League presidents are stepping down. They leave different legacies on campus Israel speech and anti-Semitism. By Andrew Lappin and Caleb Guetis reed The presidents of Harvard and Columbia have both announced plans to step down after the next academic year, part of a larger sea change in elite higher education leadership at schools that, willingly or not, have been at the center of nationwide campus debates over Israel and anti-Semitism. Harvard President Lawrence Bacow's Wednesday announcement that he would be leaving the school in 2023 came on the heels of a similar announcement in April from Columbia's president, Lee Bollinger. Their announcements were part of a larger wave of resignations and retirements in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic and other uh, disruptions to higher education. Bacow's tenure will have lasted only five years with mostly measured responses to Jewish issues on campus. Bollinger has been with Columbia for two decades and in that time, staked out prominent positions on national debates over campus-free speech, anti-Semitism and Israel policy, at times winning over and at other times alienating Jewish groups. There is never a good time to leave a job like this one, but now seems right to me, Bacow said Wednesday, in a letter to the community, writing that his last day will be June 30, 2023. His tenure will be one of the shortest in Harvard's history. The son of a Holocaust survivor who fled anti-Semitic pogroms in Eastern Europe, Bacow, 70, took over as the Ivy League University's 29th president on July 1, 2018, after previously heading Tufts University. He told JTA at the time that he was concerned about college affordability and that the value of higher education is now questioned among parents and the broader public. He also pledged to attend high holiday services at Harvard Hillel. But Bacow's plans for Harvard were upended by the COVID-19 pandemic. Under his leadership, Harvard was one of the first universities to switch to remote learning, and Bacow and his wife, Adele, tested positive for COVID early in the pandemic. Shortly after, Bacow led a high-profile multi-school lawsuit against the Trump administration over a policy to force international students taking online classes to leave the United States. Bacow took a mostly hands-off approach to issues of campus anti-Semitism and dialogue around Israel. He entered Harvard, having already been on record as downplaying reports of rampant anti-Semitism on American college campuses, calling such charges a gross distortion. He also encouraged fellow university administrators not to label campus boycott divestment sanctions movement activity as anti-Semitic, saying the move shuts down conversation though he made clear he did not support any university divestments from Israel. Those views were tested in April of this year when the editorial board of the Harvard Crimson, the school's student paper, broke with its long-standing tradition and endorsed the BDS movement. The paper was inspired by pro-Palestinian demonstrations on campus that some Jewish students said made them feel targeted and that uh, Harvard Hillel heavily criticized. More than 100 Harvard faculty and alumni organized in opposition to the student editorial, including notable university administrators such as Lawrence Summers, a predecessor to Bacow as a Jewish president of Harvard. Asked by a professor about rampant anti-Semitism on campus in the wake of the editorial, Bacow said the Crimson had the right to publish whatever it wanted, but reiterated his position that boycotting groups over policy disagreements was antithetical to what we stand for as a university. The 76-year-old Bollinger, who is not Jewish, often made headlines for his handling of free speech and anti-Semitism issues on campus. A former president at the University of Michigan, he twice courted controversy for inviting world leaders who have expressed Holocaust denial and other anti-Semitic beliefs to address Columbia. Former Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad in 2007 and former Malaysian Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad in 2019 both visited Colombia at Bollinger's invitation over the objections of the Campus Hillel, the Anti-Defamation League, and thousands of protesters. Brian Cohen, the Levine Family Executive Director of Columbia Barnard Hillel since 2012, told JTA that he and Bollinger mostly got along and the president had good relationships with the school's Jewish students. But Mohammed's campus visit was something we strongly disagreed on, Cohen said. He noted that Bollinger had famously called out Ahmadinejad's anti-Semitism on stage in uh, 2007, but failed to do the same for Mohammed. Yet Bollinger, the highest-paid college president in the country, also frequently acted on any perceived anti-Israel activity among Columbia students and faculty and among universities in general. In 2005, he appointed a committee to investigate reported anti-Israel bias by two Columbia professors of Middle East Studies. Following the release of a documentary film alleging an anti-Israel climate in the department, the committee eventually cleared the faculty of wrongdoing. In 2007, he became the chief American spokesperson against a call by a British university union to boycott Israel, saying any university that does so should add Columbia to its boycott list. He has delivered speeches to the American Jewish Committee, a pro-Israel group. And in 2010, as an undergraduate student referendum that called for the university to boycott Israel, passed. Bollinger delivered a speech to the university senate linking BDS to the rise in anti-Semitism among college campuses and instructed the university not to follow the referendum. That move was greatly supported by Columbia's Jewish students, Cohen said. Bollinger also contributed to Columbia's Jewish student life in more unsung ways, Cohen said. He helped launch a dual degree program between the school and Tel Aviv University. During the pandemic, when Hillel sought to update security for the university's Kraft Center for Jewish Studies, Bollinger, according to Cohen, privately agreed to have his office pay for the cost of that upgrade. He's had quite a tenure at Columbia, Cohen said. We'll miss him. Other prominent university presidents who have recently left their posts include Amy Gutman at the University of Pennsylvania, who left the Ivy League school in February after 18 years to become the U.S. ambassador to Germany. Morton Shapiro at Northwestern University stepped down this year after 13 years at the helm of the Big Ten school. Both Gutman and Shapiro are Jewish. Both also confronted anti-Semitism and Israel speech issues on their respective campuses, sometimes sparking significant tension within their university communities. Gutman spoke out against a BDS conference that took place on Penn's campus in 2012 and Shapiro publicly accused anti-police activists of anti-semitism when they called him Piggy Morty at a protest in 2020. Shapiro's charge of anti-semitism kicked off a large wave of controversy in the northwestern community, with many students, faculty, and alumni, including a contingent of Jewish ones, saying the accusation was over the line and some calling for his resignation in a jta op-ed that same year shapiro who won Hillel's international 2019 maimonides award for his support of jewish life on campus also used jewish theological teachings to argue that universities would need to leave the ivory tower and rethink their approaches to education in the wake of the covid 19 pandemic next from jta in first pope hosts yad vashem director at vatican but didn't discuss Catholic Church's Holocaust controversies, by Kanan Lipschitz. Amid controversies concerning the Vatican's Holocaust-era record, Pope Francis and the head of Israel's State Museum on the Holocaust, Yad Vashem, met for a first-of-its-kind talk. Yad Vashem director Danny Dayan met with the Pope Thursday at his office in the Vatican. During their 30-minute talk, they spoke about ways to bolster collaborative activities in areas of Holocaust remembrance, education, and documentation, and to discuss efforts to fight anti-Semitism and racism worldwide, Diane's office wrote in a statement. Diane thanked the Pope for his 2020 decision to open the Vatican's archives related to the wartime Pope Pius XII whose critics say did little to intervene on behalf of the 6 million Jews that the Nazis murdered in the Holocaust. But they did not discuss the Holocaust-related controversies that for years have been straining Jewish-Catholic relations, Diane told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Instead, Diane focused on areas of consensus and on strengthening ties with the Vatican, he said. One of these controversies is the ongoing beatification of Pius XII. Another concerns other archives that Holocaust researchers say are still inaccessible to them. And another is centered on the debate on whether the Vatican should acknowledge and provide some more details about what Pius XII did during the Holocaust. You don't sit with the Pope on specific files. You sit with the Pope on the big issues, on the principles, on the headlines, Diane, a former Consul General of the State of Israel in New York who became the head of Yad Vashem last year said when asked whether he brought up any of these issues during the meeting. Asked whether he had made any requests, Diane replied, no need to make requests for sure, not demands. When all our requests are answered diligently, we are completely satisfied with the attitudes of the Pope personally and the Catholic Church, the Vatican. Not all Holocaust historians share Diane's satisfaction. Certainly not David Kurtzer, a professor of Italian studies at Brown University whose 2014 book on the Pope's ties to fascism won a Pulitzer Prize. Kurtzer this week published a new book titled The Pope at War, The Secret History of Pius XII, Mussolini and Hitler, based on archives opened in 2020 by the Vatican. He told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency Thursday that he hopes the Pope will consider changing the course of the Vatican with respect to the continual denial of the role of the Church and the demonization of the Jews that helped to make the Holocaust possible, and also to perhaps reconsider whether they really want to make a saint of Pope Pius XII. A 1998 commission set up by the Vatican concluded that the centuries during which the Catholic Church espoused anti-Jewish sentiments as official policy did not lead to the anti-Semitism that fueled the Holocaust. The commission's findings, which have been Vatican policy, is that the Church's theology-based anti-Judaism was essentially unconnected to the Nazi anti-Semitism based on theories contrary to the constant teaching of the Church. Kurtzer is among the many critics of this reading of history. Those critics argue that the centuries of persecutions of Jews led by the Catholic Church paved the way in some ways to the Nazi genocide. Forcing Jews to wear yellow badges and keeping them locked in ghettos were not inventions of the Nazis in the 20th century, but a policy that the popes had championed for hundreds of years, Kurtzer noted in a 2001 op-ed in the New York Times. On Thursday, Kurtzer said the Vatican was worthy of praise for that decision, but he added there are limitations on accessing other archives, including the Vatican's Secretary of State of the Archives and some archives connected to the Inquisition. Still, Kurtzer said that he is not in a position to say what Mr. Diane should or should not have said during the meeting with the Pope. Next, from JTA, Doug Emoff spoke to a Holocaust survivor and his AI twin, at a cutting edge exhibit in Los Angeles by Jacob Gorvis. When second generation gentleman, uh, when second gentleman Douglas Emoff sat down for a Zoom conversation with Holocaust survivor Pincus Gutter on Wednesday, he opened by saying, I feel like I already know you. Though the two had never met, Emoff did, to an extent, know Gutter. Just moments before the video call, Emoff had engaged with Guter's interactive biography, asking him questions about his experience in concentration camps and even listening to Guter sing Shir Hamalot, a song that begins the blessing after meals. Emoff was at the University of Southern California's Shoah Foundation where he visited to explore the center's Dimensions and Testimony project, a series of artificial intelligence bots that allow people to interact in real time with survivors of the Holocaust and other genocides. As a USC alum and the first Jewish price, uh, Jewish vice presidential spouse, Emoff knew the experience would be special, overwhelming even, but he said the exhibit far exceeds what I thought it was going to be. It's so impressive, the use of the technology, Emoff told JTA. It's so real. And you really felt you were in the room. You really felt you were talking to people. It was so engaging. The visit was the latest in a series of Jewish events. Emhoff has hosted and attended in his official capacity as the second gentleman and as a proud Jew. I never expected my Jewish faith to be that big a deal in this role, he said. As it turned out, I was very wrong. And I'm glad I was wrong because it is a big deal. Emoff has baked matzah with Jewish day school students, helped host the first online Passover Seder at the White House, hung a mezuzah at the Vice President's residence, and took part in festivities for Jewish American Heritage Month. You see these young kids screaming when I walked into a room like I was some kind of a rock star, Emoff recalled with a laugh. You really see that this representation matters, and knowing that I take it very seriously. You know this means a lot to a lot of people, as it does to me. Amoff's presence also meant a lot to the staff at the Shoah Foundation. It was amazing. Corey Street, the organization's interim executive director, told JTA, for me, for the staff, for the university, to have someone of his stature who understands the importance of what we're doing here, who has a connection to the archive, it was so meaningful just in terms of how insightful he was and how much he got it. That doesn't always happen. STREET kicked off AMOF's visit with an introduction to the center and its work. The institution is nearing its goal of reaching 10 million students globally each year, according to STREET, and the AI Initiative is a flagship product. uh, product. The initiative, which the Shoah Foundation plans to make available through local Holocaust museums around the world, aims to ensure that the common practice of having survivors speak about their experiences can outlast the survivors themselves. After showing Emoff a video testimony of a Holocaust survivor from the same town as Emoff's family in Eastern Europe, it was time to meet Guter. Emoff spoke first, with the AI rendering of Guter, asking him a series of questions about his survival story, his message to students today, and yes, asking Guter to sing him a song. Thank you, Pinchas, Emoff said to the screen with a smile. I'll see you in the other room." There real life Guter continued to share his story. He also expressed his gratitude to Emhoff and the Biden administration for their work combating hate and anti-Semitism. I really feel that you are able to make a difference and you are making a difference, Guter told Emoff. Guter spoke about the importance of sharing his story with younger generations and of connecting his experience with current events. He mentioned Russia's war in Ukraine multiple times. Take this flame, Guter said, he tells students. Light up the world with these flames and make the world a better place. Emoff was visibly moved by Guter's story. Both Guter's, in fact. I love your message of unity, Emoff told the real-life Guter over Zoom. We all need to stand together and stand united against this epidemic of hate. He thinks about the challenges facing the American Jewish community. Emoff said the words of the AI gutter, the words AI gutter expressed exactly how I'm feeling about these issues. That AI message really rang true, Emoff said. Hearing his positivity after everything he's been through, all these memories that he's had to live with for so many years, 70 plus years, and to be so positive and so upbeat and willing to share with the world now through this technology, his story is just really it's amazing. Next from JTA, men with neo-Nazi banners gather outside German synagogue on anniversary of arson attack by Kanan Lipschitz. Men flying banners with far-right symbols gathered outside a synagogue in Germany on the anniversary of its attempted torching allegedly by a Turkish citizen. Gathering June 5th in Ulm near Munich about 10 men displayed one banner reading White Lives Matter Stop the White Genocide. Another banner depicted the black sun symbol, which is popular among neo-Nazis. Local non-Jews confronted the demonstrators and made them leave the scene, according to T. Deutschland. The date of the event was the one-year anniversary of the attempted arson at the synagogue, which authorities say was perpetrated by a 45-year-old dual citizen of Turkey and Germany. He poured gasoline on the facade and set it ablaze. Rapid intervention by neighbors and firefighters prevented the flames from spreading into the building. The suspect fled Germany and is hiding in Turkey, which is refusing to extradite him. T. Deutschland said this week's demonstration may have been intended to celebrate the arson attempt. The local congregation's Rabbi Schneuer Trebnik did not rule out the possibility that the neo-Nazi gathering was to celebrate the actions of the Turkish fugitive. We experience so many absurdities it's possible they might have a common interest, he told T-Deutschland. Far-right extremists are generally hostile both to Jews and to immigrants from Muslim-majority countries. Police are investigating the incident outside the synagogue. In 2021, German authorities recorded 3,027 anti-Semitic incidents, a 29% increase over the 23,051 incidents recorded in 2020, a report by the Federal Office for the Protection of the Constitution said. As in previous reports, the government reports said that the vast majority of incidents were attributable to neo-Nazis. Leading watchdogs on anti-Semitism, including the Berlin-based RIAS, have disputed this assertion which they say is based on faulty methodology in the government's reports. Lawmakers launch Bipartisan Push for Defense Arrangement Between Israel and Arab Neighbors by Ron Campeas, Washington. A bipartisan slate of lawmakers launched a bill that would establish an integrated air and missile defense capability, joining the United States, Israel, and Arab countries in a bid to deter Iran. Senate and House members of the Abraham Accords Caucus rolled out the bill called the Defend Act in a press conference Thursday outside the Capitol and described it as a means of advancing the U.S. brokered normalization agreements between Israel and four Arab countries that collectively bear that name. The full potential of the Abraham Accords, economic cooperation, education exchanges, trade agreements between Israel and our Middle Eastern partners cannot be achieved without a commitment to collective security said Senator Joni Ernst, an Iowa Republican, who is the lead co-sponsor of the bill, with Senator Jackie Rosen, a Nevada Jewish Democrat. America's role in activating and networking our allies and partners in the Middle East must evolve as violent extremists like Iran change their tactics and onboard new systems capable of catastrophic damage against civilian targets. It's not clear from the bill how formal the arrangements would be. The bill uh, tasks the Secretary of Defense with establishing an architecture and acquisition approach for an integrated air and missile defense system to counter threats from Iran. Israel has traditionally been wary of formal defense pacts with even its closest allies wishing to preserve its right to act unilaterally. However, Israeli officials have in recent years signaled that less formal arrangements that preserve Israel's agency are acceptable. The bill also designates, as participants in the arrangement, the four countries signed on to the Abraham Accords, Morocco, Sudan, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, as well as countries that still have no relations with Israel, including Saudi Arabia and Iraq. Saudi Arabia looks closer than ever to formalizing what has been for years a secret relationship with Israel and reportedly are near an agreement that would allow Israeli aircraft to fly through Saudi airspace, But Iraq is openly hostile to Israel. Ernst said that the United States should coax those countries into participation. She noted that the U.S. consulate in Erbil, Iraq came under drone attack Wednesday, an area that has in the past come under fire from Iran and its proxies. We understand understand they are not part of the Abraham Accord, she said, of Iraq and Saudi Arabia. But it is extremely important that we continue the discussions with them as well as wrap them into this agreement as part of the DEFEND Act. We have to continue those conversations with them. We just saw the attack in Erbil yesterday." In a press release, Ernst named an array of Jewish and pro-Israel organizations that backed the bill, but there was no institution linked to any of the Arab countries named in the bill. The lead quote was from the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. By directing a strategic approach to cooperative missile defense and counter UAV coordination, this legislation strengthens the U.S.-Israel partnership as it enhances regional cooperation against common security threats, the powerhouse pro-Israel lobby said. Hadassah said the bill, should it become law, would strengthen cooperative defense across strategic allies in the Middle East to protect Israel and its neighbors against growing threats from Iran and its proxies. Lawmakers leading the push for the bill in the U.S. House of Representatives include Representative Brad Schneider, a Jewish Democrat from Illinois, and Representative Kathy McMorris Rogers, a Washington Republican. Ernst expressed confidence at the outset that the bill would sail through Congress, given its bipartisan backing in both chambers, but it may hit some roadblocks. Progressive Democrats have in recent years grown increasingly wary of delivering arms to the Middle East, to Israel and also to authoritarian Arab countries like Saudi Arabia. The bill could also be seen as an irritant to Biden administration endeavors to re-enter the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. Lawmakers at Thursday's press conference suggested that deterring Iran was made urgent by the apparent failure of those talks, which are currently stalled in Vienna over Iran's insistence that Biden removes Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps from the list of designated terrorist groups. The Trump administration quit the deal, known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, in 2018, and Biden wants back in because he sees the deal as the best means of keeping Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon. As we realize, as the administration works to revive the JCPOA from the dead, Iran continues to not only bolster its breakout time to build a nuclear weapon, but is also doubling down on its ballistic missile program as well as its regional troublemaking in the Middle East, said Representative Jimmy Panetta, a California Democrat. And next from the New York Jewish Week, State Supreme Court Sides with Mother in Dispute Over Sons Yeshiva Education by Julia Gergely. A New York State Supreme Court justice ruled in favor of an Orthodox Jewish mom, who said her son was denied an adequate secular education at his Brooklyn yeshiva. This week's ruling directs the state's education department and the city's department of education to complete a long-stalled investigation into the school yeshiva Masifta Arugath Habosem in Williamsburg. Proponents for improving secular education at yeshivas hailed the ruling. They said it provides momentum in their efforts to get the New York State Education Department to implement proposed regulations meant to ensure that all students receive the education to which they are entitled under the law. Yeshivas and their advocates say their right to establish their own curricula is a religious liberty issue. The case heard by the Supreme Court was brought in 2019 by Beatrice Weber member of Brooklyn's Hasidic community who claimed that her youngest son, then nine years old, wasn't receiving a substantially equivalent, that is, equivalent to public schools education under the law. A lower court directed her back to a family court. Justice Adam W. Silverman's ruling on June 7th upheld her appeal. Weber received assistance from Yafed, an activist group that is seeking to improve secular education at the Jewish parochial schools. Yafed helped match her with a lawyer and file the petition. We hope this does send a clear message to the city that they must compete, uh, complete their investigation and produce their findings and be transparent about how they're going to remediate these issues, Naftali Moster, founder and executive director of Yafed, told the New York Jewish Week. Silverman ruled that the city's investigation into Weber's son's yeshiva, which has been ongoing since 2015, must come to a conclusion within the next four months. This is the first time a judge has formally ordered the city agency to conclude its investigation, according to David Shapiro, Weber's lawyer. Critics and defenders of the yeshivas have been weighing in on a new set of proposed guidelines released in March that would direct private schools to show that they meet secular curriculum standards. The public comment period ended May 31st. Agudath Israel of America, which represents Haredi Orthodox Jews, urged its members to fight the proposed oversight. We cannot allow the government to come in and unreasonably control how and what we should be teaching our children, Rabbi Chaim David Zweibel, Aguda's executive vice president, said in a statement. Weber acknowledged that ruling, that ruling may have come too late to ensure that her son gets a substantially equivalent secular education at his yeshiva, where she said only one hour a day is allotted towards secular subjects. And next from JTA, Massachusetts Democrats, including Ayanna Pressley, condemn pro-Palestinian project Mapping Boston Jewish Groups by Andrew Lappin. At least four Democrats in Congress, including one vocal critic of Israel, have spoken out against a Boston pro-Palestinian activist group's initiative mapping local institutional support for the colonization of palestine saying the map which includes the names addresses and staff members of many jewish organizations could incite violence against the jewish community representatives ayanna presley jake auschencloss seth moulton and richie torres each separately condemned the mapping project this week in statements Presley, Kloss, and Moulton represent districts in Massachusetts. Torres represents a New York congressional district. Their statements followed the a denunciation of the map by Boston's largest communal Jewish organizations. There is no doubt that anti Semitism and organized violent white supremacy are at a boiling point in this nation and threaten our communities, Presley said in her statement. She added, it is not acceptable to target or make vulnerable Jewish institutions or organizations. Full stop. Presley's statement was notable because she is a member of the progressive squad of representatives who include Israel's strongest critics in Congress, Representatives Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar. Presley herself voted in 2019, shortly after being elected, to condemn the BDS movement, but since then she has expressed increasing solidarity with the Palestinian cause. Last year, during Israel's deadly conflict with Hamas in Gaza, she delivered a speech on the House floor condemning USAID to Israel and saying that the funds create conditions for oppression and apartheid. She also is one of nine members of Congress, along with Tlaib and Omar, to vote against sending funds to replenish Israel's iron Dome missile system. Without referring to the Mapping Project directly, Presley in her statement cited last year's stabbing attack on a Boston-area rabbi as evidence for the need to be vigilant when it comes to keeping each other safe. Oshenklaas told Jewish Insider this week that the Mapping Project's actions have the potential to incite violence, especially in a moment of heightened anti-Semitism and gun violence. Moulton tweeted that the project is an anti-Semitic enemies list with a map attached. Torres, a progressive who has often defended Israel in public statements, said the project was an example of scapegoating, which is a common symptom of anti-Semitism. The mapping project draws what it says are lines of influence between Zionist leaders running the gamut from Jewish political organizations and foundations to Jewish day schools and synagogue groups and other harms, including local police departments and pharmaceutical companies. In a statement on its website, the Anonymous Group, which has connections to the boycott, the boycott uh, Boston Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions movement targeting Israel, says its goal is to dismantle these institutions. The project also includes some politicians, including the state's two non-Jewish Democratic senators, Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey in its web of supposed Zionist influence. Other Democratic political figures who have criticized the project include Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey, State Senator Becca Rausch, and Chip Goins, a former organizer for Presley. BDS Boston continued to defend the project on social media, retweeting messages, messages of support from figures including black Jewish author and theoretical physicist Chanda Prescott Weinstein. The vast majority of organizations on the map are not Jewish, Prescott Weinstein said, adding that jewishboston.com and Google Maps will literally tell you where all the Jewish orgs are much more efficiently than this map does. Next from JTA, what can Disney adults teach us about religion? A lot, according to this professor by Jackie Hodgdenberg. It started innocuously enough. A post from AITA, a Reddit channel that poses the question, Am I the A-Hole? went viral on Twitter earlier this week when a Disney-loving woman claimed to have forsaken catering for her wedding guests in order to pay for a Mickey and Minnie Mouse appearance at the ceremony. Responses ranged from horror at the egregious wedding faux pas harsh critiques of disney adults or millennials who spend a considerable amount of their time and money visiting disney's theme parks typically without children and then there was the response from jody eichler levine a jewish professor of religious studies at lehigh university eichler levine who has written about the way disney functions as a religion for some urged against the criticism of adults who love Disney, arguing that much of the criticism of the Disney adult is overly simplistic and rooted in sexism. Many of the Disney fans I have observed in person and online find immense meaning in the parks. People don't just marry at Disney, they mourn lost relatives at Disney. They go to Disney to celebrate surviving cancer. They go there for one last trip before they die, Eichler Levine wrote. Religion is a way of making meaning in the world through stories and rituals. As her thread gained some traction, Eichler Levine, who has also written extensively about Jewish Jewish imagery in media from Maurice Sendak to Hamilton, faced mockery and criticism, including a deluge from Jewish Twitter users who found her 2020 essay drawing comparisons between the pandemic closure of Disney parks and the destruction of Judaism's ancient temples. She received so much scorn through direct messages that she made her account private for a day to stave off anti-Semitic and sexist harassment. We spoke to Eichler Levine about her scholarship, that temple essay, and her role at the center of the Disney adult discourse. This conversation has been edited for length and clarity. JTA. You became one of the most talked about people on Twitter this week and you said you were the recipient of anti-Semitic harassment as a result. Tell me about that. Eichler Levine. I did not expect this Twitter thread to go viral. I didn't think it said anything that revolutionary. I was just saying, hey look, this is a site of real meaning for people. I've been studying Disney films since 2019. So have lots of other scholars, it really means something to people to get married in Disney World. It really is a ritual, and there's people who orient their lives around it. So I would say Disney is at least quasi-religious, if not religious, and the reaction was dramatic. Religious Studies Twitter said this is an overly facile argument. Jewish Twitter, to the extent I saw it, seemed to be mad at the revealer article and that comparison. The anti-Semites came out because I talked about capitalism. I mean the anti-Semites came up because I'm Jewish, frankly. But I started getting a lot of retweets discussing the global Jewish conspiracy. I had pointed out that that religion is often intertwined with capitalism. This is something Weber talks about in terms of Protestant Christianity. But the ancient temple was very holy. It was also a place for people to pay their farming taxes. And so I think the fact that I talked about money, and I'm Jewish, and I do Jewish studies, led to the predictable Twitter anti-Semites, not a term I use lightly, kind of going bananas. I locked my account down and then reopened it when the fuss died down a bit. It was a deluge. Other people were offended that I was taking on some kind of heresy, that there was something heretical in comparing Disney to a religion because real religions aren't capitalistic, according to critics. Real religions are real. But if you're in religious studies, your job isn't deciding if a religion is real or not. That's a theological question. I don't do that. I'm not a theologian. I'm not a rabbi. I say, okay, what practices and rituals are going on in the world that have meaning to people? And that doesn't mean that Disney is or is not a religion. It means we understand it better through the lens of religion and this kind of comparison. You wrote about Disney as a stand-in for the temple. What are the other parallels that you see between Disney and Judaism? It's interesting to think about both the parallels between Disney and Judaism and also the ways that Judaism is represented in and around the parks. So, for example, when Disney does their special holidays around the world at Epcot, they have a Jewish storyteller singing Hanukkah songs and making Jewish food jokes. So there's a way in which Disney's new approach to multiculturalism has kind of grafted Jewish traditions that I think is fascinating in terms of those structural similarities. Like Disney being like a temple, a site of pilgrimage. That's the most obvious one, is this idea of a holy center. And anthropologists have been looking at Disney this way for decades, in fact. It's not a new observation. I think you've also got interesting comparisons when it comes to canon canon is relevant for a lot of different fandoms, Star Wars, which is now owned by Disney, Star Trek, and Disney has this sort of ever-evolving canon of films and characters that ends up commenting on itself in very midrashic ways. The live-action remakes are kind of taking biblical stories and filling in new details and altering them for the times, just like what we saw in the evolution of the Talmud and Rabbinic literature. That reminds me of the 2007 Disney film Enchanted, which is a commentary on the whole of Disney itself and all of these ridiculous norms of the Disney universe. Enchanted is a great example because it's a meta movie and very much like rabbinic literature you have to know the signs to see them. You have to know the shots to say, oh that looks just like a shot from Beauty and the Beast or that camera angle is from the ballroom scene. It's very much an insider language which we see in a lot of religious traditions. People tend to dismiss Disney. They dismiss it because it's seen as kid stuff and because they think of it as fake. But even if the people in the costumes are fake, the emotions are real. So the intervention I was trying to make was to draw attention to the fact that this is real for some people. This is not just kid stuff. And it's no different from people who weep when their sports team wins. I'm a Boston Red Sox fan, when they finally won the World Series in 2004, all of the reporting was on men in Boston who lived through the whole drought, just weeping, and I'm not making fun of that. I thought it was very powerful, but we didn't mock it the way we mocked Disney adults. There's a gender component too. When it comes to Disney as opposed to Marvel or Star Wars, there's a larger number of women in the fan base. Princesses are symbolic of Disney, and they are girls. And so that idea of princess culture, of course, is problematic if we're looking at girls' agency. Even Disney has realized that. But because of things like princess culture, Disney the brand got feminized. Part of the rise of Marvel and Star Wars is to defeminize the brand as as a whole, but the actual word Disney for a lot of people still evokes women and children and sometimes gay men. And all of those people are demonized by certain segments of U.S. society was a viral tweet last year mocking a woman who cried when she saw the castle, because Disney fans are feminized and infantilized. And at what point did you realize that things had snowballed, that this was going in a much bigger direction than you anticipated? And how do you think the fact that you were a woman and Jewish contributed to the harassment that you were getting? I realized it when I started getting media inquiries certainly written for the public a lot before, but it started to happen at an unusual rate. And then, to be honest, I have a job. I was also trying to work yesterday, but every time I checked in, things were kind of, people have gotten much more viral than this. It's not that high a number, but I think that was a pretty clear indication. It was a lot of men. There were plenty of women who were critical. I'm fine with intellectual criticism, but a lot of, yo, you're stupid comments threatening direct messages were almost universally coming from men. This is why a lot of people, including women, don't want to engage on social media. What were some of the valid intellectual criticisms you received, and how did you respond to them? They got very lost in the deluge. But on academic Twitter, specifically on religious studies Twitter, there were lots of thoughtful criticisms. One of the best came from a scholar who pointed out very thoughtfully that when we say don't pathologize joy, don't mess with people's joy. They're having a good time. He pointed out that they're having a good time. But there's also a lot of exploitation involved. Exploitation of their pocketbooks, exploitation of resources. I mean, Disney took over the Everglades in the 1970s. You can't ignore the problems with Disney. They are racialized problems lot of problems. There are a lot of problems with Disney. I didn't want the threat to go on forever, but in my broader work, I'm certainly attending to that. And also religious studies Twitter kind of went, well, I didn't think this would be what made religious studies become the Twitter discourse, but here we are. But it reinvigorated a lot of the debates that people thought were settled in the study of religion, like the idea that there is no one normative thing that is religion. One of the things people have been discussing in religion studies since before I even went to grad school 20 years ago is, if religion is this capacious term, can you make it really capacious and apply it to anything that has rituals? Or does that dilute the term so much that when we say religion, we just mean culture? People have also studied the fact that religion is a western concept. Jonathan Z. Smith famously wrote an essay about this. So did a lot of other scholars. It's kind of reinvigorated a lot of those debates about what can we call a religion, how does religion connect with commerce, and when we're talking about religion. If we describe something, are we validating it? Are we valorizing it? Because a lot of people took the tweet to mean she thinks that corporations are great, and saying you shouldn't pathologize something means you shouldn't criticize it. But when I say don't pathologize Disney fans, I'm getting at this really gendered, these are hysterical fans, or these are strange adults who are interested in children, which just reeks of homophobia as well. So to pathologize something is to say it's diseased, it's the problem, we need to get rid of it, we need to cut it out. I think it's fine to criticize Disney fans or to criticize Disney as a company, but I'd like to see people using richer descriptions of what they criticize and I think it's fine to criticize Disney adults, maybe, but first we should understand. There's also a discourse critiquing the idea of the guilty pleasure, because why should things that bring us pleasure make us feel ashamed or guilty? How does that apply to the furor over Disney adults? This is not meant to be a knock at Christians, but I think it's part of the unspoken Protestantism that is part of American culture. Parts of the United States that we think are secular have this kind of Protestant overlay to them, where the ideas of guilt and sin are really profound. Now, that doesn't mean there's no guilt or sin in Jewish tradition, but humans' original nature is not always thought of as sinful in Jewish tradition. You have this idea of Yetzer Hatov, the good inclination, and Yetzer Hara, the bad inclination, sometimes translated as evil, but they're both there. And if I may generalize, Jewish tradition can actually handle joy and play pretty well. The rabbis are very playful in the way they engage with one another. Next from JTA, non-gendered language for calling Jews to the Torah gets conservative movement approval by Jackie Hodgdenberg. Five years ago, Rabbi Guy Austrian made a small but powerful change at the synagogue he leads. He wrote down the language his community used to call non-binary members to the Torah. That language has been developed informally over time through a process that Austrian called uh, recalled as being a little awkward because it involved tweaking language on the fly for congregants whose gender did not fit into the male-female binary. That's baked into Hebrew. Codifying the language meant changing only a few words of a formula in use in synagogues around the world, but it was essential to including people who are non-binary or otherwise do not identify as a man or a woman, Austrian said. That makes the honor feel like an honor for the person who's being called up to the Torah and for the congregation, Austrian told JTA. Now, Austrian rabbi of the Fort Tryon Jewish Center in Upper Manhattan is one of three authors of a religious opinion approved last week by the Law Committee of the Conservative Movement that officially endorses gender-neutral language for Torah honors. The opinion, called a teshuva, prescribes non-gendered language for three different honors, including the Aliyah, the blessing before and after the Torah reading, Hagbah lifting the Torah, and Galila, rolling up the Torah. It also includes procedures for calling up Kohanes, descendants of the priests of the First Temple, and Levi's, descendants of the tribe of Levi, as well as how to address people during the Mishabarach prayer without using gendered language. According to the New Teshuvah, for example, a non-binary person who is called up for an Aliyah, instead of being referred to as Ben, son, or Bat, daughter, is referred to as Mbait, or levate, meaning from the house of their parents. The opinion notes that this construct was precedent, has precedent in ketubahs, Jewish marriage contracts, and in the Hebrew vernacular. The teshuva only affects rabbis and synagogues that are part of the conservative movement, which claims about 26% of US Jewish adults who identify with the denomination, and even there, it's not determinative some have already been using the language and the approval does not require anyone to start still it reflects a notable change at a time when people who are gender non-conforming including non uh, binary or transgender are facing fierce opposition especially from republican lawmakers who have made 2022 a record year for anti-lgbtq legislation nationwide for those who are looking for an elegant and efficient solution and want to be able to have an inclusive community that honors people of all genders, this offers useful guidance, Austrian said. The authors of the opinion, along with Austrian Rabbi Robert Scheinberg of the United Synagogue of Hoboken, New Jersey, and Rabbi Deborah Silver of Shir Chadash in Materi, Louisiana, say that in addition to drawing from Fort Tryon Jewish Center, They consulted variations of Jewish liturgy from LGBTQ synagogues, such as Congregation Beit Simchat Torah in New York City, and Congregation Sha'ar Zahav in San Francisco, Jewish organizations such as Keshet and Trans Torah that focus on LGBTQ inclusion, and individuals who are trans or non-binary. The writers also note that they may not be the ideal authors of guidelines about how to mesh a contemporary understanding of gender with traditional Jewish law because they themselves do not identify as non-bi- non-binary. It's just important to remember that this is an evolving terrain both in society at large and within Jewish communities, Austrian said. So we don't think that this teshuva is the last word and we hope that there are more non-binary queer and transgender rabbis in the rabbinical assembly, that they'll be the ones who write the vote that will come. A diverse set of Jewish thinkers and clergy are already reshaping the role of gender in religious experience. In recent years, gender-neutral terms for traditional Jewish customs, such as the B'mitzvah, in place of Bar or Bat mitzvah, have gained popularity. The Trans Halakha Project, which creates Jewish legal practices, customs, and resources for trans Jews, launched just last year an initiative of Svara, a Jewish learning group catering to queer Jews. The New Teshuvah is a codification of a practice that has already existed in spaces led by trans and non-binary Jews, said Lainey Solomon, a non-binary rabbi and one of the co-founders of the Trans Halakha Project. I think it's essential for halakha to be shaped by the people who it is about, Solomon explained, referring to the disability activist community's use of the phrase nothing about us without us. Solomon, who consulted on both the new conservative teshuva and on the original liturgy from Fort Tryon Jewish Center, said we're seeing the codification of minhag, of real custom and ritual, that has been shaped by trans and non-binary folks. So while in the end this happens to be written down by folks who are not trans or non-binary, this work was created by trans and non-binary folks, and that's what's so powerful to me about it. Meanwhile, people in both the United States and Israel have worked on creating a non-gendered version of Hebrew, a language in which nouns, adjectives, and even verb conjugations carry masculine and feminine forms. One of them, Lior Gross, devised a way for non-binary people to speak Hebrew in part because they had trouble imagining being called to the Torah using traditional gendered script. Like the other initiatives, the conservative movement's opinion represents an important development and inclusion in Jewish life, said Joshua Racklaw, an associate professor of linguistics at Westchester University in Pennsylvania, who is non-binary and focuses on gender and sexuality in language. Racklaw noted that gender non-conformity is embedded in Jewish tradition from its very inception. In the book of Genesis, Adam is referred to as both it and them. Even in the same sentence, he pointed out, adding that one second century rabbi specifically called Adam an androgynous, a term referring to a person with both mas- uh, masculine and feminine characteristics. While both biblical and modern Hebrew feature a grammatical gender binary, this tells us nothing about the genders that might exist among Hebrew speakers, Ratclaw said. Then, using the Hebrew term for repairing the world that has come to mean social justice, they added, but even beyond historical precedent, recognizing that non-binary Jews exist and creating pathways to further welcome us to the Torah seems to me to be a perfect example of tikkun olam. Next from JTA, Orthodox rabbis don't enter churches, so why was Britain's chief rabbi at St. Paul's Cathedral by Kanan Lipschitz? Most Orthodox interpretations of Jewish law conclude that Jews are forbidden to enter churches even if no prayer will be taking place. So why was British Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis present on Friday, two Fridays ago actually, at uh, St. Paul's Cathedral in London where he attended a prayer service in honor of Queen Elizabeth II's 70-year anniversary on the throne? The answer dates back to a ruling from 19 se- the 1970s by the London Bet Din, the Orthodox Rabbinical Court, which allows rabbis to attend Christian religious ceremonies only if the rabbi's presence is requested by the monarch. And Mervis's presence was indeed requested at St. Paul's, where he joined a select group of dignitar- dignitaries and clergy for the Queen's Platinum Jubilee 2022, four-day bash to celebrate the legacy of the longest-serving monarch in British history. Mervis was among 2,000 elites attending the service of Thanksgiving at St. Paul's, a massive 17th century English Baroque-style structure that is the top church of the diocese in London. And that was on Friday, June 3rd. All eyes were naturally on Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan Markle, Markle, whose attendance was the first time in over two years since they moved to California amid a rift in the family over allegations by Markle, whose mother is black, that she was subjected to racist treatment by top members of the royal family. Queen Elizabeth 96 was absent from the ceremony. In a statement by Buckingham Palace, the royal house said that she is sitting the service out with great reluctance after considering the journey and activity required, she did take part in a beacon-lighting ceremony the night before. Whether Jews may enter churches has been the subject of debate for centuries. Many rabbis who have considered the issue have concluded that churches are the site of avodah, zarah, or idol worship, which is strictly prohibited under Jewish law. But others, including in the conservative movement in the United States, have taken cues from a 13th century rabbi who decided that Christians were not idol worshipers and decided that entering churches can be permissible, opening the door to interfaith relations. In the United States, some controversy arose over Rabbi Haskell Lukstein's participation at the inaugural church services for President Barack Obama, where the Orthodox rabbi recited a non-denominational prayer. He faced criticism from one Orthodox group, but rebuffed it by citing British rabbis' attendance at events in Westminster Abbey. In the United Kingdom, the issue of what to do about royal events was resolved in the 1970s, according to Herschel Gluck, a Haredi Orthodox rabbi in London. It's pretty much consensus at this point that the rabbi should not enter church, as he said, but, he told JTA, the only exception is when the monarch requests it. Previous chief rabbis may have been even more lenient on this point. The late Rabbi Emmanuel Jacobitz, who had held Mervis's position for 25 years until 1991, explained his approach in a 1995 book. After consultation with the London Beth Din, my own practice is occasionally to attend church services on royal and state occasions to represent the Jewish community, he wrote but I never actively participate, nor do I wear cap and gown. I find that my Christian hosts usually show understanding and respect for this attitude and its reservations. He did not mention a royal invitation as a prerequisite to attending such events. Part of the reason for the consensus around the concession may be connected to the presence of the royal family in Jewish worship in the United Kingdom. Since 1801, when the first siddurs or prayer books were printed, British Jews have been reciting a prayer for the monarch each Shabbat and on other holy days as part of shachrit, the morning prayer service. Dutch Jews have been doing so for even longer, since 1642 at least, and reciting a prayer for the country is common in many countries. The current wording for the prayer from 1962, ten years after Queen Elizabeth rose to the throne, begins with our Sovereign Lady, Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth the Queen Mother, Philip Duke of Edinburgh, Charles Prince of Wales, and all the Royal Family, may the Supreme King of Kings, in his mercy, preserve the Queen in life, guard her, and deliver her from all trouble and sorrow. Merbus, the Chief Rabbi, authored a special prayer for the Jubilee, in which he wrote, Seventy years have passed since Her Majesty the Queen ascended the throne. Together with all our fellow citizens, we fervently pray that she be granted many more years of blessing so that she may continue to bring honor and glory to the crown and all her people. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you very much for listening.